Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Katie Berlin. It's great to have you with us again. And my guest today is fabulous veterinary technician, Liza Rudolph. Welcome to Central Line. Thanks for having me, Katie. This is a blast. I can't wait to talk about these new guidelines. <laughs> yeah, like I'm really excited because um, this is a gems from the guidelines episode, which means that we are talking about, um, we're talking to one of the task force members from our selected endocrinopathies of dogs and cats guidelines. And um, that is a mouthful, but I understand the reasoning beside, behind needing to name it that. Like they're definitely, we're not trying to cover all of endocrine disease in these guidelines. <laughs> like we're ambitious, but not that ambitious, right? So, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So as a task force member, you know, I'm going to be asking you a lot about that. But first, first things first, would you mind just introducing yourself and a little bit about you and how you came to be here? Sure. Um, as you said in your introduction, my name is Liza Rudolph, and I am a veterinary technologist and a veterinary technician specialist in clinical practice, uh, in the canine feline subspecialty, and also in small animal internal medicine. Currently, I'm the new program director for Rowan College of South Jersey. So we're working cooperatively with Rowan University that's developing a vet school. So that's very exciting to have yeah. a vet school in New Jersey and be part of the process. As far as experience before I moved into the educational realm, I did have about 20 years clinical experience in small animal uh, medicine between general practice and also specialty, and that encompassed some emergency, but I did find my love in internal medicine, so that definitely became where my heart and soul went in veterinary medicine. (laughs) And which fits because it's hard to love endocrine diseases if you don't love (laughs) internal medicine. (laughs) I I have realized this in being part of this task force and talking to other people about it, that not everyone feels about endocrinology the way that I do. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think that's accurate. And I I think I've done podcasts um, with Patty Lathan and Renee Rosinski, and they were wonderful. And we said the same thing, you know, like either love it or you're like, please, somebody like take this Cushing's nightmare off my hands. And I'm glad that, you know, you being on the task force that you are one of the ones who can't get enough of it. (laughs) It's true. Guilty as charged. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I will say I always pick medicine over surgery for sure. I was much more um, comfortable in the, the realm of mystery than like immediate decision making like with blood that was not my not my my thing so i feel that um okay so personal question uh you know we in the guidelines we now have mascots for all of our guidelines and our endocrine i don't know if you've seen her yet but she's super cute um so by the time this episode comes out she will have made her appearance but her name is minnie and she's a little white dog and she's very thirsty so she definitely fits um fits the the mood of the guidelines but um, the, these mascots come with a little hashtag and it says, you know, hashtag what guides you underneath them, because we all have something that guides us, that brings us to the profession and that keeps us going in the profession. And I was wondering in, in vet med or in life, what guides you? That's a great kind of 
big question when it you is. think about it, yeah. especially when you're thinking uh, personal life and professional life. I think for a lot of veterinary technicians and the whole the whole healthcare team, that I think that at our core, you know, a lot of times we take on the identity of our position, right, our career. But if we distill that down, we're caregivers, right? Yeah. And we're often always caregivers. We're not just caregivers when we're on the floor. We go home and we interact with our humans, our friends, our family, and we're still caregivers. So I think at the end of the day, anything that's associated with that is kind of our driving force, uh, which is why I think we're also very generally speaking, pretty empathetic as, as a profession, because we have to be, especially because our patients don't have their own voices. So I think that when I when I think of it through that lens as a as a caretaker and speaking for those that have no voice, I think that in order to be a good patient advocate, um, that we really need to be the best technicians, assistants, veterinarians that we can be, right? Because otherwise, we're not providing that care that we want to do. So I really do think that that's part of it is, is how do we provide that care and make sure we're providing it uh, well, but also we have to have the education in order to do that and also be open to, you know, realizing that maybe sometimes things change and that the way we've always done it maybe isn't the way anymore, or maybe that validates the things we've been doing this this whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of people in veterinary medicine that, you know, some of the terrible phrases that we don't want to hear are, we've always done it that mm-hmm. this way, right? Or we've never had a problem. And, but when we think about it, those are only half of the statements, right? Because it's, you know, we've never had a problem, until we do. Right. <laughs> we've, you know, you we've do always done enough. it this way. <laughs> right, exactly. Just thinking just purely of statistics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and also thinking of, we've always done it this way, but is it the right way? Right. Um, and I like to make this analogy in that, you know, some people might say that I have a pretty firm le- uh, lead foot when I'm driving. <laughs> okay. Some people. They might some people that. some people might say that however you know this i think it's a great example because if that were true <laughs> um how many times was it never a problem and i've always done it this way and i haven't gotten pulled over it doesn't mean my behavior's right, but it absolutely reinforces that behavior over and over again yeah <laughs> yeah i mean hypothetically Hypothetically, if I was someone <laughs> that drove fast, right? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I like the way you put that too, because it was making me think of of times where maybe the way that we've always done things is the best way, you know, and it's stuck around for a long time because it's a good way. And but so maybe there are cases where progress isn't necessarily needed in terms of how we do something, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't investigate. And constantly keep testing and trying that. And so like, exactly. Maybe. And that's for that. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. Like maybe you driving with a lighter foot just to see if it makes a difference in your day. And if it doesn't and you can do it fine, then maybe you've averted disaster down the road. (laughs) 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I think that that all ties together. Um, since we went off on a bit of a tangent about yeah. my possible driving habits um, that, you know, as caregivers, we have to be open to make sure that we're learning yeah. or validating what we're doing. And part of that is education and having an open mind and being open to interacting with other humans and having other open communication. So I think all of those things tie together and that that education and trying to be the best humans and veterinary healthcare team members that we can be, that's that driving force. Love that. I love that so much. And it's very relevant to this because the guidelines are kind of, you know, an ongoing way for vet teams to keep themselves educated and keep checking the practices that they're doing and see if they measure up to what subject matter experts actually feel is the most current recommendation. Um, And that's one of the things I love about them. And um, you were on the task force for the select endocrinopathies of dogs and cats guidelines, which will be just out um, right about the time that this episode airs. So very exciting. It's coming up now. And uh, I was just wondering, like being on the task force, you know, you're um, a VTS, obviously very educated and experienced and comfortable with this subject matter. But if I'm not mistaken, everybody else on the task force was a veterinarian. Is that right? That is correct, yes. And what was that like for you, the experience? I have to say for my experience was overwhelmingly positive. That's great. Um, It was. It was a really great experience, too. And and of course, these subject matter experts to kind of be in the room where it happens, Mm -hmm. so to speak, is just fantastic in general, right? Yeah. And that's one of the things that I kind of like about VetMed is that even some of these subject matter experts that we might potentially put on on pedestals or think that there are heroes, most of them are, at the end of the day, incredibly approachable, which I think is unique in our profession. Yes. <laughs> yes. Agreed. So I think that, that that general mood does kind of um, come over into the task force. And I think that our goals were all aligned. We're, we're here to put out these guidelines to evaluate the data and also, you know, bringing a technician in to have that, that slightly different perspective in how do we get the vet team all on the same page and look at things more cohesively and more holistically. That makes so much sense. And I'm really glad you had a positive experience. Um, You know, it it should be that way. And I know that veterinarians, especially veterinarians that, you know, are being selected for the task forces, which is a, for anybody that doesn't know, like the task force is not like AHA just goes out and like plucks people out of the ether to be on the task force. It's like, there's a whole process, you know, and, and we, we are looking for a really balanced, um, you know, table of perspectives so that we're not leaving out large sections of the people that we're trying to help. Um, and so, you know, in this case, it seems like everybody got along really well. And, and even though this is a huge, difficult topic, like you all were able to to get your thoughts in, in a way that could be digested by general practitioners and their teams. And that's sometimes really hard for people with an academic background and research background to get things into a digestible clinical setting. So, um, so that's, that's really great to hear. And I, I 
do you feel like your voice was was heard in this in these discussions like you were among your peers versus people who kind of felt like oh there's a technician in the room because I've been in rooms like that <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that I, I I did feel like I was part of the part of the group um, in that you know bringing that that slightly different point of view sometimes meant that if we were talking about a certain topic and here I am in the room with the mm-hmm. subject matter experts and these people on these panels I didn't have much to contribute because they were doing the vet things, right? Right. They were checking the boxes and looking at it from their point of view. But then when it shifted to me, when we started talking about uh, diagnostics and what these patients look like when they come in or when they just even call the front desk to come in, that these patients are interacting with multiple people before they even get to see the veterinarian. But the veterinarian isn't privy to that because they're not there. So I think it was um, a really good balance that that we reached in terms of everybody uh, basically speaking to their own uh, experience and expertise. That's great. That's awesome. Um, Do you have a pearl of wisdom that you took with you after this task force meeting that that you want to share, like uh, something that people will find in the guidelines? Yes, there was actually there was actually a couple of pearls and some of them I either knew or knew that it was uh, up for discussion, right? So it was nice to, like we were talking about earlier, have that validation, mm-hmm. right? So a good example would be um, like a dexamethasone suppression test, right? And if we're using something like dex-SP or dex-sodium phosphate, that if we look at that front of the vial, it says four milligrams per milliliter, If we turn the bottle over, it actually says three milligrams per milliliter of active ingredient. And that's something that as time went on, I knew. At some point, I learned that certain doctors preferred to calculate based on the active ingredient versus what it actually says on the front of the label. But to hear that as an actual recommendation from the task force validates that, oh, yes, we should be calculating based on that and making sure that with protocols like this, especially with testing and and endocrine diseases, that everybody's really and truly on the same page in terms of consistency results and, and interpretation so that we're comparing apples to apples when these patients come in over and over and over again for their follow-up. So I think that's a that's a really good example of of something that was validated yeah. through this conversation. I that mm-hmm. is you're I'm just having flashbacks to all of the times that I had this conversation in the clinic. Um, I'm assuming that you mean and I'm assuming based on my own bias, but I'm assuming that you mean that it's the the three milligrams per milliliter that is the correct one to use for calculation. So it's the active ingredient and not the label. Correct. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. But I mean, and if you've, exactly, exactly. And I'm sure you've been part of those conversations, like you totally. say, that kind of end up being debates. And yeah. so to have a reference that says, we should all do it this way. Yeah is just so, so, so validating um, in terms of those consistency for, for results. Um, One of the other things that I was, I was happy to be part of disseminating was um, for ACTH tests, the cortisin that we use and how that is stored if you're going to freeze it, Um, you know, because in the, (laughs) exactly, because in the past 10 years, uh, I started doing a lot of relief work. And that's when I really became aware that 
every single clinic was kind of doing something slightly different. And maybe some of those things made a difference and maybe them, some of them didn't. But at the end of the day, a lot of these clinics didn't know that you can't freeze quartracin or store quartracin in glass because it binds to glass. Um, a lot of them didn't know that you can't refreeze quartracin um, once you put it in the freezer. So to, again, to have that reference that says this is okay and this is the way that we can do things, I think is just fantastic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, um, and I, I am a person who likes, I don't mind looking things up, but I like it to be simple. Um, so I love a chart, you know, or like a table. And I feel like, you know, we're gonna have a lot of resources um, in conjunction with these guidelines, as we usually do, there's always a resource page of the guidelines where we pull out tables and things like that. Um, and so I think it will be very useful for people to be able to just flip to those and, and look up things like that and just be like, see, <laughs> the task force says, man, I could have used that in some of those debates about the DEX SP. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so exactly. Thank you for validating me now that I'm not in the clinic right now. I can't <laughs> use that information. But if anybody's listening <laughs> who has had that debate with me, um, but there's so much in these guidelines because, um, I mean, you, there's so much to cover. And I know one of the biggest things that I've run into with endocrine disease and clients and team is just the number of times that the people have to come back with the pets, you know, for the blood draws and the tests. And like, there's always another test and people don't know what they don't know. So, you know, if, if, like you said, if one doctor is prescribing something one way and says, you know, come back in three weeks and another doctor says, come back in two weeks, then, does the front desk person make the appointment for two weeks, three weeks, or two and a half weeks? And does it matter? And this is something that I, I think is so important. And I wanted to go back to that when you said it, just because that consistency means everything, right? Absolutely. And and I do think I do truly think there's a there's a balance between being over, overly protocol driven mm -hmm. and being consistent, right? But what you brought up is a great example for that because you know, when we, again, when we think about how many people that that pet owner interacts with, it, they interact on every single level. And if we don't have that consistency in messaging, that calls into question the, the trust. And especially when you're talking about a long-term disease process, these owners need to know that we actually do know what we're talking about and that they're not going to get six different answers from six different people yeah. right so i think that and i think that's that holds true for any consistency even if we're talking about vaccine guidelines for making sure. sure that we're doing that same messaging um because once we build that trust i think that's that's really what bonds the the owners to that practice right and it enables us to give that consistent care so i think it's one of those situations where everybody wins <laughs> yeah and i absolutely agree and i having worked only in multi-doctor practices you know where there were a whole lot of us in these doctor meetings and we we're all going to different ce and we all were reading different things we all had areas that we cared about in some practices you know in one practice that i worked at we had protocols for everything you know and we all had to follow that protocol and then in other practices i was in we 
we kind of just did our thing. And I think that that had to be very confusing for the clients, but also we don't like to be told what to do. So <laughs> everybody wants everybody wants that autonomy, but also the consistency is what really helps drive that compliance and the trust, which is making everybody's jobs easier. So would you think that based on these guidelines that say you work at a six doctor practice, that when new guidelines like this come out, it's a good idea for the doctors to sort of sit together and say, okay, let's take a look at our old protocols and see if there's anything that should be tweaked and then kind of agree on like kind of a baseline skeleton for how we're going to do things. Yes. And I think the way that you explained it is actually perfect. Um, I do think that having, like you said, some sort of baseline, some sort of default Mm -hmm. of if we run an ACTH, if we run a dexamethasone suppression test, this is the way that we do it. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that we're handcuffed to it either because, and I'm not a veterinarian, but I know that cases are different. Not every patient's the same. There may be a completely valid reason why we may go off protocol, but establishing that consistent message is is really important. The other thing that I found too, when we have multi-doctor practices where everyone has their, their own protocol, which is fine. We all prefer the things that we prefer. However, you know, when you get into that, a lot of times these clients aren't actually seeing the same doctor. So what happens when you have Dr. A that runs an ACTH one way, and then they see Dr. B and then it's run another way and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Are we really, are we really able to look at all of those lab results and compare them apples to apples? Yeah, because we need that consistent. We need that consistency, especially and um, with the diagnostic tests. Yeah, in order to interpret them. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that the numbers themselves could change based on how you're running the test. I mean, if you're using a different dose of Dex, for instance. I'm just going to keep coming back Absolutely. to that until I die. <laughs> um. <laughs> That's fine. It is uh, It has shifted the attention off of my bad driving habits, so that works for me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, bad driving and dexamethasone. That's going to be the title of this episode. Oh. That sounds good. <laughs> um, so, so when you know when we're talking about the numbers mattering, like that's one thing. And then I'm also thinking of times where, like, these aren't the diabetic guidelines because the diabetes guidelines are separate. They have their own. They're very diabetes is big, so it has its own. But um, just thinking of that as an example, like I got in a huge, you know, bowl of hot water when I my one of my bosses was gone, you know, and he'd been at the practice forever and had clients that only saw him, you know, and he diagnosed a patient with diabetes and then was gone. And they came in and had some diet questions, and I just answered them completely differently than he would have, like completely differently. And um, it did not go well, like at all. And I was doing what I knew to be the most current thing, you know, that that I knew of. Did I know what my boss had told them? Absolutely not. And it was, um, it made it much more difficult for him and me in the long run. And that client probably thought that we had no idea what we were talking about. We were just making stuff up because it was completely different. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really important on so many levels to have that consistency. And it doesn't mean like your CSRs can learn this stuff too, you know? Um, so 
So that leads into my next question, because you had mentioned that you were talking about like how, you know, in the task force, you discussed how to get the team on board and how to get the team all sort of unified in working towards helping these patients with these really sometimes difficult to manage chronic illnesses. And um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, what was that discussion like? And um, what big takeaways do you think you could share? I think that, and and I do think, like my entire experience with the with the task force and developing the guidelines, that the that the general um, feedback and and interaction was good once we brought in the team members because I think that everyone on the task force, especially with topics like technician utilization being very very hot right now, mm-hmm. um, in terms of increasing your efficiency of practice, that really going back to that consistency that if you have CSRs, assistance technicians that can answer those basic questions, right? Because they know, because we have a consistent message, there's no need that this necessarily needs to escalate all the way up to the veterinarian. Now, yes, we should make sure the veterinarian's aware that this client called, but at the same point, if it's a very simple question and it's part of our messaging, there's no reason for a client to wait you know, hours or even days later for a very simple question. And I think that that also, um, in addition to the trust, that it's that level of competency mm-hmm. um, that that is really important as well. And even in the most basic sense, uh, like, like I, I mentioned sh- uh, briefly earlier, that from the second that that owner either walks in the door or makes that phone call, they're talking to the CSR. And then after that, they may have, an, for example, maybe an assistant that loads that room. Maybe after that, there's a technician that walks in. And so there's so many levels of this that it's, it's really important that we look at it through all of those, those points of view. Because what a client is going to tell the CSR, the assistant, the technician, and the veterinarian is not going to be the same thing. No. <laughs> that's, that's the truth. No matter how hard you try, it's not going to. <laughs> exactly. And I think we've all had that experience, right? Yeah. Where one person gets sort of a partial history and somebody else gets the other one. And, you know, they look at each other like, wait, wait, they didn't tell me that. And <laughs> yes. I swear and, I did not withhold that information from you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we just have to un- understand that. And also part of, um, part of that, uh, that communication with our pet owners, also making sure that we know how to get those patient histories and that we're asking the right questions because I, I think that's a there's an art to that, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, making sure that we're asking those open ended questions that we know why the actual owner is here, what prompted that visit, and making sure that we give them that that space to talk. And in addition to it giving us in the, the information, because that's going to guide where we go from there, it also, again, builds that builds that trust to the client. They know that they've been heard. They know that you know what the concerns are. And being able to repeat that back to the owner and then on, maybe onto the veterinarian is absolutely paramount because even though we did harp about <laughs> consistency in diagnostics and laboratory testing, at the end of the day, we all know that we don't treat laboratory numbers. We treat patients and we have to look at them through that entire entire lens. And that's why I really think that the role of the whole vet, veterinary healthcare team is so, so important to these long-term patients. If you're a fan of Central Line, there's a good chance you're a super fan of VetMed. 
Well, I've got big news. AhaCon, the ultimate event for veterinary superfans, is coming to San Diego, the home of the con, this September. Level up your skills, knowledge, and connection with more medical and scientific tracks, a killer keynote, and interactive learning experiences for the entire veterinary team. Early bird registration is open now. Visit aha.org slash ahacon. That's aha.org slash A-A-H-A-C-O-N to learn more and save your spot. Yeah, I just I just made a note because that made me think that like the art of taking a great history should be a podcast episode because um, it is definitely an art. And weeding through the things that clients tell you it's kind of like mystery solving. It's like treasure hunting and, um, and putting together pieces of a puzzle. And there are people that really gravitate towards that. And there are people that just like want to get out of the room. And I, I would love if teams could sort of, you know, gently nudge the people that love the treasure hunt and love to make sense out of the stories that clients tell into, you know, helping solve these tough cases. I would love that if they, if those people could be the ones to take histories on these endocrine cases, because you don't want somebody to take like a two sentence history on the, the Cushing's dog who, you know, is, has new skin lesions and also isn't sleeping at night and all the things. Yes, a- absolutely. I couldn't agree more <laughs> on how important that is. And, and it's a learning curve too. Um, you know, let, let's be honest, when we first get out of school or we first walk into a vet clinic, we're not going to be good at it. And yeah. that's that's okay. Having a learning curve is okay, but being open to be to in to experience that learning curve is is very is very important, I think. Um, and I lost my train of thought, but that's okay. <laughs> that's the theme for today. <laughs> that's that's okay. We could just just put a pin in that. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> um, so let's say that you have, like, we've all met the patient, right? So it's like a little white dog, little white fluffy dog, used to have a lot of hair, now not so much. And um, she comes in for her, you know, 25th blood draw of 2023, and it's March. <laughs> and um, you... you how do you make this experience not so painful, like physically, emotionally? How, what roles does the team have in making that experience? Just so it's never going to be fun, but how do you make it a little bit less not fun for that patient and that client? I think that we do, most of the time, I think that we do try to do this, um, you know, just as, uh, as I mentioned earlier, kind of naturally being caregiver givers and empaths on the whole that Mm -hmm. we we try, but at the same point, I also am well aware of how busy we all are. And sometimes, you know, we forget that us being, being busy or being short with clients, that that sends a very particular message. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that's dismissive of that client or that, you know, your pet's just a number or what have you, but it it sends all sorts of, all sorts of signals. So even little things that prioritize that patient care, and it may sound silly, but putting that towel down on that, Mm -hmm. on that exam room table, uh, if you are able you know, having the owner present so that we're not running back and forth, back and forth uh, between the, between quote unquote, the back right. um, and the front. <laughs> the black box that is the back. It, correct. Exactly. Um, because then they see, and also you get to spend more time with them mm-hmm. so that 
you have that interaction so that they don't just feel like they were churned into some massive veterinary laboratory diagnostic machine and, oh, yeah, the vet will call you later, right? Right. (laughs) Yes, that's such a great point. And now that I'm not working in a clinic right now, I have become a client and I don't want you to take my pet away from me. I want to see everything you're doing. It's not because I don't trust you. It's because I like to be with my pet. You know, I like to be with my cat. My cat is super chill and he's like a golden retriever in a cat's body. And I get really nervous because he was not always like that. You know, he was a stray and I get really worried that he's going to have an experience through no one's direct fault, but just because I'm not there to sort of help guide that experience and make sure that he knows that I'm there. There's a familiar person there who loves him. Like I worry that he's going to go backwards. And and I think we've been doing this for a long time where we just take pets away for blood draws and cystos and stuff like that. And, and in some cases you have to, but in many cases you do not have to. And that's something I'm really glad you brought up because I'm a big fan of the blood draw in the room whenever possible. Um, even if there's no vet that's going to come in during that appointment, you know, um, tech appointments too, I think. If there, Absolutely. If there's a space. And, and- Exactly. And as you said, you know, we kind of have it once again, that default, that protocol. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, let's just say the protocol is in the room and that the owner is present, let's say when we're getting a blood pressure, right? Because we want these patients to be as calm as possible. That being said, every patient's going to be slightly different. You know, working through an internal medicine service, I have had patients that have been one way or the other, right? Mm -hmm. There's those patients that come in the door and the longer that they are there, the, the, they're, they're shaking and you just know yeah. their blood pressure is rising. Yeah. So those are the ones that you're going to go right in the exam room and in a very calm way, do it as quickly as possible, yeah. right? But then there's other patients that, you know, are, are more excited when they come in the door. I'm thinking of our, let's say our super happy Labradors or yep. golden retrievers, and they're super excited and yay, everybody's in the waiting room. And then they go in the exam room and maybe those are better to leave in there and chill for 10 to 15 minutes because that's what's going to work for them. Mm-hmm. So I think having that flexibility to really provide the patient care that that patient needs as an individual is just so paramount to, um, to these cases, particularly the ones that come back over and over again, because we all know about white coat syndrome and how problematic blood pressures can be in the vet office. And we take them with a grain of salt and, yeah. and we should, but being able to do what's best by that pet for that pet and working with our patient, I, I think we can really maximize the care that we can provide for these patients, particularly, as I mentioned, the long-term ones. That is that is music to my ears. And, and also hearing you say that as a technician, you know, in, in at least one hospital I was in, it was always the veterinarians who were kind of like, hey, you know, I think that dog looks stressed, let's slow down. Or, you know, hey, I don't really like the throw the blanket over the boxer and lie on top of her to get her nails done kind of thing. And then I moved to a fear-free hospital and the whole team was empowered to make those calls. And it was night and day difference, not just in how the pets were treated and how they acted and how the clients perceived what we were doing, but also we just felt better about our lives because we didn't have to like manhandle anything in order to try to get them better. And it didn't feel like we were doing harm in order to do good. And I think that's where a team can really make such a big difference is like, 
some doctors are going to be more attuned to that behavior than others. And to have a technician or an assistant like pipe up and say, hey, I don't think this is going like, do you mind if we take a break or like, you know, can we try something different? Um, is it, it would mean the world to me as a doctor to have somebody say that. And I hope that people are feeling that like, they have the ability to do that on the teams they're on. I hope so too, because I really do think that that's that's a big component on on how we move forward, right? Mm-hmm. In, in in a profession, looking at team based care, how how we're doing no harm to these patients yeah. and being able to work with them. I think that that's that that's the key because um, nobody, let's be honest, nobody wants to throw a bo- a, bo- a blanket on no. that boxer. Nobody wants four people on it. Nobody. Okay. So if you want that, this might not be a good fit for you. (laughs) Correct. And that's the thing. And a lot of times in those situations, whether we're talking about anybody on the team, no one's 100 percent comfortable with that. No one is. So that that kind of stuff slowly does kind of eat away at that caregiver that we have at our hearts, because that's not who we are, yet we're doing it. So I think that we need to kind of stay, take a step back and, um, and you know, and just evaluate what we're doing. And if we're doing, if what are, we are doing is actually the right and best thing by that patient. Yeah, totally, totally agree. Um, if you're not, if you feel like something's off, you're not comfortable doing it, it's okay to say, hey, look, can we just hold up a second and think about whether there's another way. Um, and sometimes that other way is coming back another day because um, clients are astonishingly willing to do that if you kind of explain to them what the alternative is, which is basically torture <laughs> for a lot of these pets. The pets don't know it's going to be over in 30 seconds, you know, um, that that level of fear that they have is not only harmful, but for these types of diseases, right, where you're measuring stress responses and things like that, like it can actually affect the test results to have a really, really stressed out pet. Um, so overall, I think that's a great answer, which is that the team can really work together to try to make this like somebody's coming to a friend's house for, you know, for a few minutes to get this procedure done rather than we're going to that big scary place. They hold me down and stick me with things. Um, Nobody wants that. Right. Absolutely. And you mentioned, you know, having that conversation with the owner. Mm -hmm. And that to me is very key being open and forthright with the with the owners, because uh, I had an I had a, a example where there was a there was a patient that came in and I don't recall why it came in. I think the patient came in was vaguely ill, not terrible, so we elected to do blood work and send it off to the reference lab. That patient decompensated and was back that night through the emergency facility. So we had that patient, we grabbed that that one of those front limbs and shaved that hair off where the blood draw was, which of course we didn't know, which was fine, but apparently for whatever reason, it was very clearly a traumatic draw because that patient's, I mean, their limb was incredibly bruised and I instantly felt badly for this patient because in my mind, even though owners don't want to hear this, coming to them and saying, if they're not in the room, hey, I'm, you know, hey, I'm really not comfortable with how this is going. And you don't have to say, I don't know what I'm doing. You just say, you know, in my experience, a lot of times it's easier to visualize the vein if I just, just clip a little bit. I don't want to keep 
fishing and poking in there. And every once in a while, some owners will say, oh, heavens to Betsy, don't shave my dog. Right, but, show dog or something. Right, exactly. But by and large, most owners are willing to sacrifice a patch of fur so that you can provide good care and that we're not you know, torturing them by poking them and fishing around when really all we actually need is a little bit of visualization. So that having those conversations and also it makes that owner feel like they're part of the team because they are. Yes. (laughs) So also a really good point that I'm glad you brought up, which is, um, you know, the owner that vets health, the pets healthcare team is, we're talking about a team-based approach and we've talked about like CSRs and vet assistants and technicians and veterinarians, and that's all great. And then there's another very important person on that healthcare team, especially when it comes to these pets with really chronic, generally incurable diseases that they're going to have, you know, medications for and repeat testing and monitoring and all the things the owners have to be very alert at home and their life basically changes overnight when they figure out that there's this diagnosis and people that are coming back like this are people who have decided they're going to try to treat this thing you know and um and we sometimes i think take that a little bit for granted I, I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. And, you know, and framing the owner as part of the team and thinking of them that way, I think really does kind of reframe the entire way that we think of these these long-term diseases. Because as I mentioned before, we have this protocol again, right? But we but we treat patients. So uh, if you have that Addisonian, maybe, you know, maybe a injection versus an oral is going to be better or worse for that particular patient. And so we tailor it for them. And how are we going to determine what's best by talking to the owner? And the same thing with diet recommendations and things like that, Um, whether a drug is given orally or transdermally, we need that feedback from the owner on what's going to make it work. Because the last thing we want to do is dismiss an owner's concerns on how a medication is being delivered because it's not going to end well and we're not setting them up for success. And then that leads to the frustration of, I can't do this. What was I doing? I'm a terrible pet owner. And it can just go from there. So I think it is really, really exceptionally important um, to make sure that the pet owner is is part of it. And honestly, pet owners want to be part of the team. Mm-hmm. They, they want to be part of it. They want to know that they're part of the team and that their voice is, is being heard. Yeah. And I can hear a lot of veterinarians saying, like, I do not have the time to have these conversations over and over. Like, you make them part of the team and they call all the time. And sometimes they do. Like, sometimes they do and, and you know, send you their little journal entries from like how the dog slept last night and how much water the dog drank yesterday. And it's a lot, but this is another place where the whole team can get involved because the veterinarian doesn't have to field all of that alone. And um, it's not like the rest of the team isn't busy, but it also is something where that, that I was going to say burden, but it's not really a burden. It's more like a gift if they're giving you information that will help you treat this pet. That can be spread out a little bit um, over multiple team members. Absolutely. And hey, I worked in internal medicine specially for a number of years. I've gotten gotten awesome Excel documents (laughs) and journal entries. And particularly some of the the Excel documents, you can, I mean, they have it set up so you can filter and sort everything. So I (laughs) I don't even know how to do that. (laughs) 
I, I know how to do it now. <laughs> but, but, you know, sometimes that's, but that's what makes the owner feel like they're competent, mm-hmm. like they can do it. Yeah. So we do have to have a little bit of grace when we get all of that information. But like you said, not all of that has to be fielded by the veterinarian. It can, you know, even if we're not sure, sure, maybe that file, um, that record gets flagged to the owner and they take a quick look and say, oh, okay, so-and-so can handle this, call back and tell them that. And that's all that needs to happen because if we use our, our technicians and our assistants and our CSRs all to their maximum ability, everybody wins. Love it. Mic drop. Uh, no i i can't think of a better way to to wrap up than that because that's exactly it and if i could put that on a t-shirt well here i am like i'm walking away with one of the questions but um (laughs) if i could put a post-it on everyone's bathroom mirror that's what it would say is if everybody's used the top of their potential everybody wins do you have another another something that you would put on every let, let's narrow it down and say veterinary technicians because I think that's a group that we're thankfully focusing more on now and thinking about like what technicians need to be happy and sustainable. What would you want every veterinary technician in the field to see in the morning when they get up, go in the bathroom, and look on the mirror? <sighs> just the one post it, and that's hard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> especially after you just said, called me out and yeah, said sorry. it was a mic drop. How do I follow that up? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it could be like brush your hair or like I mean, put on okay, the clean okay. scrubs. The- <laughs> yes to all of those things. Um, but but also, I think that maybe since since we have a good theme going here with, with team building and being part of the team, maybe just a post-it note that in all caps says, you are part of the team. Keep your brain, you know, and that just means keep your brain engaged. You know, it's not just, you know, the doctor said X, Y, Z. Well, if something in you says, maybe that's not right, you need to be able to be to be comfortable to bring your concerns to that veterinarian. So I think remembering that we're part of the team, that we are that patient advocate is going to be make a, a huge difference in how we perceive our roles and how we treat our patients and interact with our fellow vet med family. Love it. And that also gave me another podcast idea, which is you're a technician and you think the doctor made a mistake or you're you're wondering if that's really the right way to do things. How do you bring that up? So that's going to be a future episode for sure. Oh, <laughs> I, I will hope- definitely look forward to that one. That sounds great. <laughs> um, I'm writing that down. Um, Liza, thank you so much for coming by and spending all of this time with us. I can't wait for these guidelines. Um, they're definitely going to be like a, one of our more clinical guidelines. There's a lot of, of meaty material in here about how to take care of patients, but this part is just as important, the team part. So I'm really glad that you were there and that we had this conversation. I, I am I am still honored to to have been asked to be part of it, and I'm thrilled to be able to come on here and and talk about it, um, and 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 from a complete team point of view. So this has been great. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, it's been a pleasure, and thank you to everyone for listening. The 2023 AHA Selected Endocrinopathies of Dogs and Cats guidelines are going to be out at the time this is aired. So stay tuned for those. Um, You can check them out free on our website and um, we'll be posting a lot more stuff about them in the coming weeks. So don't worry about that. You won't miss them. Thanks a lot. And we'll catch you next time on Central Line. 
Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.